Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Discovery. Time flies when you're learning super cool stuff. I'm Nate. And I'm Callie. If you're dropping in for the first time, welcome to Curiosity, where we aim to blow your mind by helping you to grow your mind. If you're a loyal listener, welcome back. Today, you'll learn about a potential new treatment for those suffering from brain fog after COVID, how freemium models of mental health apps might cause you to be more stressed out, and how developments in creating a vaccine for fungal infections might make them a thing of the past. Without further ado, let's satisfy some curiosity. I think it's pretty annoying how COVID brain fog is around and people have it and there's no treatment and it's been just affecting people for months or years. But fortunately, that actually might change soon. Okay, I have heard of brain fog before, but I didn't know it was an actual clinical diagnosis. So this is a well-known part of COVID-19 symptoms that is related to a lack of function in executive functioning, working memory, and attention regulation within the prefrontal cortex. So these neural circuits are remarkably vulnerable to inflammation and stress, which creates a perpetual feeling of fogginess. Okay, yeah, I've definitely heard of this. I think I've experienced it once or twice, but I have never had COVID. What is the connection here between the two? Specifically, this is something that affects people with long COVID, a.k.a. the long haulers. And this is people who have some COVID symptoms for weeks, months, or even years. And one of the key symptoms is brain fog, which can lead to a lack of mental clarity, poor focus and concentration, memory problems, difficulty with multitasking, and way more. But some researchers out of Yale might have finally found a way to get rid of brain fog for good. Okay, that's awesome. Then how are they doing this? A combination of two drugs. The drug Quanfacine, which was approved by the FDA to treat ADHD back in 2009, as well as N-acetylcysteine, also known as NAC. And this is an antioxidant used for the treatment of traumatic brain injuries. And a combined therapy with these two was successful in relieving brain fog for a small selection of 12 patients. Okay, that's actually fascinating. So I am familiar with guanfacine. I've got ADHD, so I'm familiar with it. Less familiar with NAC. What are they doing with these two drugs in tandem now? I'm very curious about this. All right, so guanfacine is designed to strengthen prefrontal cortex connections and protect against inflammation and stress. And although it was originally developed to treat ADHD, it's already being used to treat other conditions associated with prefrontal cortex dysfunction. NAC is an anti-inflammatory agent that can also be used to further treat this neural region. Awesome. Okay, so both of these are working to reduce inflammation, it sounds like. Why Mm -hmm. is it this combo, though? So the head researcher on the project noticed an overlap between brain fog and symptoms shown by post-concussive patients. So he came up with the idea of combining two methods of treatment— modifying the pro-inflammatory pathway in the brain with NAC— but also treating post-COVID neurocognitive conditions with the guanfacine. And even though, like you said, both are anti-inflammatory, each has a specific function that lifts the fog. And after his first patient recovered, he treated 12 more patients by instructing them to take one milligram of guanfacine at bedtime, then to increase the dosage to two milligrams after one month, alongside 600 milligrams of NAC once per day. See, sometimes I giggle about medications and dosages because on one hand, we're talking about two milligrams after one month alongside (laughs) 600 milligrams of the other drugs. Yeah. 
But hey, I'm six hundred milligrams. Six hundred milligrams. Why not? So, what were the uh, the results here? All right. So, eight of his patients got way better. They had improved memory, better organizational skills, and better ability to multitask. For some, the brain fog completely disappeared, and they were able to resume their everyday lives. Two of the patients were unavailable for follow up, and two others actually stopped the meds due to side effects. They had issues with low blood pressure and dry mouth. But since then, he's modified the regimen from an immediate release form of guanfacine to an extended release form, which should reduce the risk of these side effects. Okay, this actually sounds awesome. So why isn't this widespread? Like, why aren't we using this yet? Oh, you know, just the normal things like lack of money and no funding for a placebo-controlled clinical trial that involves larger numbers of patients. But fortunately— Is that all? (laughs) There you go. Uh, Fortunately— in this case, researchers say that people can ask physicians for a prescription for guanfacine, and NAC is actually available over the counter. Okay, so does that mean that people could be using this treatment now if they wanted to? Yeah, it is important to note that since this hasn't been placebo-controlled, this is not an official brain fog treatment yet. Researchers hope this treatment can be helpful in other groups of patients, and long COVID isn't the only post-viral condition to cause brain fog. Patients with conditions like myalgic encephalomyelitis slash chronic fatigue syndrome, or ME slash CFS for a little shorter. It's a little uh, can, shorter. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, better. These patients can also experience these debilitating cognitive deficits. But since you still need a prescription for guanfacine, you will still be safely monitored by your doctor. And hopefully you never have to say all of those big words again. I think I might have brain fog just from (laughs) talking about this story. We'll get you some uh, NAC. (laughs) Perfect. So it's easy enough to say that we sort of need a little bit more help in the mental health world these days. And apps have actually been sort of making a splash, and it's been fantastic. But we need to be careful because some studies are showing that mental health apps may actually be bad for you. Bad for your mental health? Why are <laughs> why are mental health apps bad for your mental health? Okay, well, it's not just mental health. It's bad on your wallet, too. Ooh. Many researchers say we are in the middle of a worldwide mental health crisis with unprecedented increases in depression and suicide only made worse due to COVID-19. This led many people without access to quality mental health care to download commercially available mental health apps. And these apps are really popular. Uh, The Android and Apple stores have over 20,000 mental health apps, and some apps report over 10 million downloads. That is a lot of people trying to improve their mental health, which sounds like a good thing. You would think, but these apps offer treatments for a wide array of mental health conditions like emotional analytics for mood disorders or cognitive behavioral therapy for depression or meditation and mindfulness methods for stress and anxiety. Now, they have very well-documented benefits, are always available and private, and small numbers of clinical trials even show that they help treat depression, anxiety, and bipolar disorder. That was a good long list of good things about them. Mm -hmm. What are the issues then? All right. So in many countries, including the U.S., mental health apps are entirely unregulated. This means there's little motivation for developers to test for treatment efficacy. A lot of popular apps aren't supported by clinical trials or don't incorporate evidence-based strategies. The real problem starts with the freemium payment model, which is when an app has 
a combination of features that are free and paid. Maybe the app will promote itself as 100% free for first consultation, but then you're prompted to sign up for a subscription to view the results of your consultation. Okay, that does seem pretty shady. <sighs> Drawing people in, it's not like a bait and switch sort of thing. Like, is this, I mean, is it legal the way they're doing it? Doesn't sound like it should be. Yeah, that's the thing. It's 100% legal. It's unethical, in my opinion, but it's legal because the payment mm. methods are always posted somewhere in their app store listing. So the thing is, is that these costs just start adding up real quick. So to break it down, a study on the negative side effects of freemium mental health apps found that 80% of reviewed apps use a freemium model, although most offer a seven-day free trial, and that trial requires credit card details. After the trial ends, average subscription rates become roughly $10 per month, $58 per year, or $260 for a lifetime subscription. And the problem is that a lot of these apps are set up with such vague language that most users didn't even realize they'd signed up for a long-term subscription. Oh, okay. I mean, I, I get if an app is going to be paid, but then I kind of feel like it should just be paid, or if it's going to give you a trial, it should give you an actual free trial. What's the vague language that's confusing people on these? All right. Let's say you signed up for the monthly $10 subscription fee with a week-long trial. The app will tell you at the end of the week you'll be charged, quote, the monthly subscription for an entire year. When the end of the week arrives, you're suddenly hit with a $120 charge because the app just charged you $10 per month for an entire year for a total of $120 up front after the beginning of your first week. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I get why it's not legal. I would read that. I think I would understand monthly subscription for the full year. But I would point out, in a mental crisis. Oh, that's true. Yes, and if somebody is in a crisis, that's going to make it a lot more difficult. Very true. <laughs> so, it is actually legal because of the terms of service for each app store. When you set up an iPhone, you are immediately presented with thousands upon thousands of words written out in complex legal jargon, right? I mean, I know you don't have an iPhone, but... That's the point. <laughs> Those are the terms of service, which at one point was actually over 56 pages long. And even today, it's around 12 pages long. And buried within are words that outline how an app can do this as long as they clearly outline the pricing. The wording is technically clear. So as you pointed out, a monthly subscription for an entire year. Yes, that makes sense. But again, it's sort of predatory because these are people in crisis who aren't reading things very clearly, probably. And there's even a term for the most predatory versions of these apps called fleeceware. Okay, well, uh, what's fleeceware? How does, how does that work? This is the term for mobile apps that overcharge users for basic functionality. Not apps made to steal your personal information or give your device a virus. They technically work exactly as they promised, but are, to put it scientifically, sketchy as hell. Uh, a few questions you can <laughs> The yeah, scientific term, yes. <laughs> You're welcome. There are a few questions you can ask yourself on how you can tell if a mobile app is fleeceware. So first off, does it provide a free trial? Does it advertise a lower price than the one you're charged? Does it offer weekly or monthly payment plans while costing more than similar apps? Does it target less tech-savvy users who are also younger? And if so, it's fleeceware. All right. That uh, does seem like a huge problem, and probably with, like, every kind of app that's out there. But, yeah, it's especially evil for mental health apps. That's not cool. Evil's a tough word, but 
it's it's pretty, uh, yeah, it's a little predatory. And the study found a vast majority of vulnerable users in crisis were impulsively downloading fleeceware. Some even provided users with inappropriate or incomplete treatments. For instance, some users are tasked with paying the app in order to access their own personal data. How does a user not have their own data? Well... A lot of those apps encourage users to post daily journals to promote self-diagnosis. There's actually a free future on most of them, or so it's claimed. But after a while, the data gets restricted if they don't sign up for a pay model. Users are unable to access past posts, unable to reflect on past experiences, which defeats the entire purpose of the exercise. One review said, I've been consistently filling out my week to see my stats just to be told, hey, a bit late, but you actually have to pay to see how you've been doing. If I had known that from the beginning, I would have deleted the app a long time ago. Yeah, you're right. That is that is absolutely a predatory and intentional design. Like, they're trying to mess with people at that point. A little bit. Money. Yeah. Researchers even claim their study might even be a little conservative since they excluded short, non-current, and unverified reviews from their data. The grimace statement in the study is in its conclusion. The quote was, Overall, these freemium design practices mean that some users are forced to choose between two types of negative outcomes, failing to receive the treatment that they need or incurring expensive charges. Yeah, that's sticking someone between a rock and a hard place, but you're doing it on purpose. So what can we do about this? Like, is there anything we can do? Well, I mean, you can try to be a little bit more cognizant, but it's going to, you know, be difficult. One approach could be increasing government regulation on smartphone apps. Another approach could be writing our app stores demanding more specific criteria in terms of service for freemium app design. Researchers say more ethical guidelines should include clarity about the exact medical condition being addressed, precise descriptions of overall treatment features, specific details of charging practices, and whether apps include ads which may potentially impair treatments, which, you know, won't guarantee a change, but it's a pretty good start. How's this for a crazy coincidence? I was watching The Last of Us the other night on HBO when I started thinking about how scary it would be if a fungus could enter the human body and turn us into zombies. Right about then, a notification popped up on my phone that a new vaccine has been developed that can fight invasive fungal infections. (laughs) Okay, first off, I think your phone is tracking you. And uh, maybe Mm. WB Discovery is revealing this to you to put your mind at ease, but I am Uh. a little bit curious about this vaccine. All right, well, first of all, fungal infections are no joke. They are not made up by the show. And they cause more than one and a half million deaths all over the world every single year. And even when they're not fatal, treatment costs a lot of money because they can double hospitalization costs and double the length of stays in hospitals because until now, there hasn't been an effective vaccine. Okay, we talk about a lot of big numbers on the show. When you say a lot of money, how much money are we talking? $6.7 billion annually. And that's just accounting for cases that were directly responsible for inpatient hospital stays. If you combine that number with secondary infections and diagnoses, the total cost associated with fungal infections was $37.7 billion. That's 1.1% of total U.S. healthcare expenses. And that was in 2018. It's believed that fungal infection costs are even higher now because of the rising risk of fungal infection seen in COVID-19 patients. 
This is insane. This I have never even heard of this, and these numbers are crazy. Well, until you have some kind of fungal infection, it's not exactly the kind of illness most people consider on a day-to-day basis. So usually, fungal infections are treated with something called azoles, which are broad-spectrum antifungal medications. Unfortunately, antifungal resistance is growing all over the world. And as more people become immunocompromised, there's more of a need for a vaccine like this than ever. And that is where Karen Norris at the College of Veterinary Medicine comes in. Okay, Karen Norris, is this the person who made the vaccine? Yes, alongside her team, who have created an experimental vaccine designed to protect against the three most common fungal pathogens on Earth. Now, that's not cordyceps like in the show. These pathogens are known as aspergillus, candida, and pneumocystis. Candida, in particular, is a huge concern in the healthcare world because different strains have become multi-drug resistant. And combined, all three of these pathogens are responsible for more than 80% of deaths from fungal infection. So this vaccine would effectively wipe out most fungal infection deaths. Okay, those odds are actually better than those of Vegas. (laughs) Um, How did they test this? So they tested it on four preclinical animal models, including non-human primates. They looked into different types of immunocompromised specimens, too, as a reflection of how drug regimens are made for organ transplant recipients. So, for instance, some of the specimens had HIV or cancer, which are a few of the most at-risk human populations when it comes to fungal infections. And in each model, the vaccine was effective. It created protective antibodies for every one of them. All right, that is amazing. That's, That's actually incredible. It's so incredible that the plans are currently underway for phase one of the human safety trial. The fact that the trials were so effective on specimens with HIV or cancer is super promising as well for two main reasons. People with HIV or who have impaired immunity from something like chemotherapy are the most at risk for fungal infections. But due to the vaccine being effective for them, it means it's also effective for other at-risk populations like people with diabetes chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or even COVID-19. All right. So I guess The Last of Us is going to become even more fiction than it already is. You can rest easy. It's already a little unrealistic for a few reasons. But if this vaccine passes human trials, then The Last of Us will soon be as much of a work of fiction as House of the Dragon. (gasps) You take that back. I mean, that's a documentary. It's totally true. Dragons are real and you can get one. Thank you. (laughs) Let's recap what we learned today to wrap up. Experiencing brain fog after a case of COVID? So are thousands of others around the world, and there's no clinically approved treatment in sight. Fortunately, researchers have discovered a nearly foolproof treatment method courtesy of a drug meant to treat ADHD mixed with a common antioxidant. The treatment hasn't passed placebo-controlled testing yet, but it's actually available for you to use now just as long as your doctor approves that prescription for you. Not everybody can afford mental health treatment in the U.S., but be wary of any smartphone app that offers free or affordable treatment. Many of them follow a freemium model, which could add even more strife to your plate in the form of unauthorized credit card charges. Many of these apps are found to be helpful, just beware of vague language being used at the checkout. In case you didn't know, The Last of Us isn't a reality yet. And with the development of a new antifungal vaccine, it might soon be completely improbable. Early trials have found the vaccine to be effective at creating antibodies for nearly 80% of all known fungal infections. These results were so promising that human trials begin soon. 
meaning that we'll never have to see clickers become a reality in this lifetime. Curiosity Daily is produced by Wheelhouse DNA for Discovery. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we would love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. 